Good morning. It is so ha- good to have you guys here today. Uh, Mac, did you want to give the announcement uh, today for... Uh, come on up here, sweet boy. <clears throat> Mac had a special announcement for the kids at this time during our worship service. It's now time for children's church to go. <laughs> That's right. If you didn't understand, it's now time for the children to head to their children's church. Thank you, big man. Appreciate that. I asked him if he wanted to help me out, and he was talking big until it was time to come up here. And I think he got, uh, got a little nervous, <laughs> but uh, he pulled it out at the end. That last minute, he pulled it out. Uh, it is so good to, uh, to see you kids. We love you. Have a great children's church. We'll miss you. God loves you. Um, for those of you that are here, it's great to have you here at the Skillman Church of Christ. Uh, what a great Sunday it has been so far. It's great to see a picture of baby Hugh. Now I know, uh, now I know what the H stands for in H. David Williams. It's Hugh. That name's pretty cool, man. You should have gone by that name. Oh yeah, now it's no longer top secret. Uh, and Marshall, what a great communion message. I, I don't think I'll forget that image of the rolling communion <laughs> down the aisle. <laughs> what a great story it has been. And the worship has been fantastic. And uh, just a joy to gather together as spiritual family. Uh, to, it's been a week since I've seen some of you, so it's good to see you again. Hope you had a great week. Uh, today's going to be a good Sunday. We're continuing our series on the ten words. Ten Greek, ten Hebrew words where uh, we are centering our message upon a single word that's found in Scripture, unpacking what that word means and and how it can apply to our life today. So the word that we're going to talk about today is the word kerygma. Can you guys say kerygma? Let's say it a little bit louder. Kerygma. Kerygma is a Greek word that means to proclaim. It means to preach. What it means is it's this proclamation that goes forth time and time again in Scripture. You see Christians going out and proclaiming, preaching the good news. And this word kerygma is the word that's used to describe what that action is. Kerygma is found in, in, in the book of Romans, and I think that'll be the text for today. We'll start with the book of Romans, chapter 10, and we'll also end in this same passage. So if you have your Bibles in front of your pew... The text is on page 1760. It's Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 11. And again, if the, it's on page 1760 for those that uh, would like to use the Bible in front of the pew. And in this particular passage, the, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome... At this time, there is the Jewish Christians who have just returned back from being expelled from the city. And you have the Gentile Christians who are newly converted to this faith. But while the Jews were away and cast out, they began to run things on their own and recreate what Christianity looked like for them in the city of Rome. And when the Jewish Christians returned back to Rome after their, uh, they were allowed to return... There was a clash. There was some differences of opinion, differences of what was important to some and what was not important to others. And so the book of Romans is Paul writing to unite these two groups together. And in the book of Romans chapter 10, the word kerygma is used. If we start in verse 11, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, 
and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That word preaching is the word kerygma. It's this idea that as Christians we have a message to share. We have the good news that we carry with us. You know, St. Francis of Assisi, he's famous for that, that saying that preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I'm sure you guys have heard that, uh, that very famous quote. From, I don't know actually if he said that, but he's attributed to that particular quote. It's this idea that we have this message. And, and sometimes we preach a sermon just by the way that we live, by the way that we treat others, by the way that we love others, by the way that we forgive. But there are also times when we do need to communicate. There are times when words need to leave our mouth, when we have something to say, we have something to, to, uh, that is the good news that we can really share with those that uh, we are living life with. In the book of Acts, it's, it's shown that when, uh, after Stephen was killed, when he was the first martyr, there was persecution in the church. And in Acts chapter 8, and if you want to turn there, it's on page 1704. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, it says, but, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They preached the word wherever they went. And, you know, here's the question. Who in the church can kerygma? Who can proclaim? Who can preach? Who can be the one that carries this message verbally to our neighbors, to our friends? Who can do it? Well, the scripture's clear. The answer is yes. Anybody in this room, anybody can do it. Whether you're a preacher, whether you're not a preacher, whether you've studied the Bible for, for 10, 100,000 years, which no one's lived that long, but whether you've studied the Bible for many, many years, whether you're, you're a new Christian in the faith, anybody can share the good news. Anybody can share a word of life and can challenge greed and can challenge uh, the things that are, of not, that are not of God in this world. And the question really is, that I'd like to, to focus on today, though, is what is the good news? What is the gospel? Because we do have the task to go out into the world. We, we have the task to live a life worthy of a sermon. But also there are times in life where we communicate, where we use our words. Well, what do we say in those times? What is the gospel? What is the good news that can be kerygmud, that can be preached? Because that is our task. That is what we are, are here to do. And, uh, and so today I thought I would do a little bit of an a, a, uh, example. This is called uh, The Gospel in Two Chairs. And uh, I can't take the credit for this fully. Uh, because uh, this is something that I saw online um, with uh, Brian Zahn. <clears throat> is the one that I first saw uh, do this. Um, but uh, I think he, he received it from another guy who received it from another guy named Steve Carbo. But it's, a, it's two ways to communicate the gospel. 
And so what I'm going to do today in this idea of kerygma, of sharing with the good news, of preaching, of using our words to proclaim the good news, what I'd like to do today is go through two stories or two versions of the gospel. I'm going to tell one, one version first, and then I'm going to go and tell a second version second. And so the first one is what's a more modern approach to the gospel. It's a newer telling of the good news. It was actually, uh, it, its origins uh, go back to Anselm, but it was made famous or really popularized by, popularized by Martin Luther and also John Calvin. And this views the good news in a legal sense, uh, where sin is to be judged and sin in, in almost in a courtroom setting. And uh, the second one is another telling that is almost what's called a restorative view. The first one we can call a judicial, and the second is a restorative view of the gospel. And I'd like to go through both of these. Uh, the first one is more in a court setting. The second one, it, it goes also uh, back to the very beginning. The patristic fathers also use this uh, this particular story to communicate the gospel. And if those are familiar with the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, these also, it's also communicated within this particular group as well. This kind of, and if you sin as a sickness, and uh, in a sickness, sin is something that needs to be uh, healed within the human being. And, and instead of a judge in the first telling, the second one is, is more of a, a good doctor, a physician, a great physician who can heal over time. Uh, the, the sin that's within all of us. So anyway, I'm going to go through these two, uh, two tellings, and uh, we'll, it'll be kind of a fun experiment. But here's the first one. Uh, and this is one that I think is uh, the ju- judicial one. This is more predominant. It's, it's a newer version, but it's kind of been the more common, the more uh, in, in mainstream Protestantism today. This is the story that we're often told about what the gospel is. Well, and one of these chairs represents God, and one of these chairs represent uh, humanity or the human condition. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And on the sixth day, God created humanity. And there was perfect harmony and union between God and humanity. They were walking in harmony. There was the way the world was intended to be. But... uh, the sad story is we get to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve decided to sin and turned their back on God by eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because God is so holy, because God is so uh, holy is the word, he is unable to be in the presence of sin. God can't lay his eyes upon sin. And so because of this, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And God also could not be in union. The relationship was severed because of the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Because God, in his holiness and his abundance, could not be in the presence of sin. So in the Old Testament, we see time and time again how God tries again to have covenant with the Jewish people, covenant with Moses, covenant with Abraham, covenant with the, the people of Israel. But time and time again, the people of Israel can't live up to the standards that God has. 
They break the Ten Commandments. They, they break the covenant. They forget the poor. And because they turn away, God also has to turn away from the people of Israel and can punish them for their sins. Punish them by, by killing and by, by, by plagues. And time and time again, you see this separation because God cannot be in the presence of sin when God is so holy. And so God's wrath was poured upon the people. Well, thankfully, God decided that, well, he needed to send his son, Jesus. And so Jesus came. And Jesus came to the earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. Did not sin. And he was able to be in unison, perfect unison with God the Father. God, Jesus the Son, God the Father, living in perfect unity and perfect harmony. But uh, as the story goes, Jesus decided to take sin upon himself on the cross, taking all the sin of the world upon his shoulders. And Jesus became sin, the entire sin. And again, because God is a God of holiness, God and Jesus at this point were separated. And as it says at the, the, at the cross, it was painful to have the nails on the hands and the feet. But the most painful thing for Jesus was being separated from, G, from God in that moment. Well, because God, because Jesus lived that perfect life, uh, he was able to defeat death, defeat and he was able to satisfy, take, take upon all the sins upon himself. He was able to satisfy the desires of God. And so, because of Jesus, we can now have unity with God. If we believe that this happened, if we believe that Jesus died on the cross and he raised and he's the son of God, if we truly believe, then the blood of Christ covers us and we are now able to be in unison with God. But those who choose not to believe, who turn their back on God, who choose not to believe the story and not go through the steps necessary to be in union with God, not take that action, they will forever be pitted against God uh, for eternity uh, because God can't be in unison with those that are choosing the ways of sin. So, you know, this is... Uh, this is the legal representation. It's the one that we've been heard, most of us have heard most of our life. And, you know, there are a lot of strong points to this particular telling of the gospel. Number one, I mean, there are some images in Scripture that support this particular telling. Uh, images of God being the, the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for humanity. There are things that support this particular view, image, imagery used in Scripture. Uh, it also does a good job of promoting... Uh, a life free from sin, uh, knowing that God himself uh, cannot be in the presence of sin. And so it, it promotes a lifestyle and a dependence, a pure dependence upon Jesus' sacrifice for us to have that union with God. But if you really think about this too, there are some questions, some questions that, that come with this particular telling. Number one is that this particular version of the gospel this pits God against humanity. Is God and humanity, are we in this tension in our entire life? Is there always this turning back on each other? 
I mean, where do we get this particular, where do we get this particular idea that God cannot be around those and have this pitting against each other who are sinning? Well, it comes from uh, the book of Habakkuk. Well, there's, there's several verses that talk about this, but there's one particular uh, in Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 13. If you want to turn there, you can, but I have it right here. I'm going to read it. In this particular verse, it says, Your eyes, talking to God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So this is a particular passage that is used to articulate this idea that God and evil can't, well, God and humanity can't be in unison because of our sin, because God can't tolerate evil. The problem is, is that we stop reading the passage. If we were to continue reading this book, this passage in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you? Why then do you tolerate this treacherousness? So one of the challenges with this particular reading of Scripture is that it pits, it pits God against humanity. God and humanity, there's this, this, this challenge that needs to be, and God can't be in the presence of humans. Because if God can't look upon sin, we all sin. So God can't look upon any of us. God can't look upon us in this particular story. Well, the reformers, they get around this. They, they get around this by saying, well, God... Looking at humanity, because of our sin, God can't look at us. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, God sees Jesus instead of us. It's almost like we have the blood of Christ that kind of disguises who we really are. And, you know, Martin Luther, he's, uh, he's misquoted as saying, in this idea, that we as Christians are snow-covered dung. It's this idea that we are dung. All of us are dung. But because of Christ, we are snow-covered dung. Still dung. We still stink. But at least we're snow-covered dung. Or even this idea, a more, a more modern telling, is that Jesus is our asbestos suit. So that Jesus is, is covering us with his asbestos suit and uh, protecting us from the flames, the hot flames of God. So anyway, that's, a, that's something to think about on this telling. It's something to consider this particular telling pits God against humanity in this, in this idea. The second thing that you have to think about this is this pits God against Jesus. Because in this story, there's a separation between God and Jesus at the cross. Well, is God Jesus? Or is, is God fully God and God fully human? And this is something that we have to talk about. Is there a moment where God and Jesus could be completely separated. You know, I think C.S. Lewis, he, uh, he challenges this idea in that book. How many of you have read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Anybody out here? Uh, so in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, there is that, that story at the end where Edmund had done something. He did something wrong to the witch. He, I don't know if he stole chocolates or did something bad, but he, stole so, he did something to the witch. And so the witch demanded... That, uh, that uh, Edmund be killed and be punished for this crime. And uh, what happens is Aslan is the Jesus figure. And uh, he decides to go to the stone. And he is going to be the representative to take on that pain himself. And to be killed on Edmund's behalf. And so as the story goes, Aslan takes that place. 
Now here's the question. Who, where is God in this story? Is God the witch? God is not the witch in this story. God is Aslan. And God is challenging the evil of the world. And so you see that in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, this idea that, <clears throat> that Aslan takes the stage, and in that process, he, he promotes a new language, a language of love that shatters that table in half. And so we have this idea of this, this, this first telling. It's, there's, there's some strong points to it. But one of the challenges, is God a wrathful God in this story? Is God a God that needs to be appeased, that needs to be satisfied in a judicial sense? Because uh, if you look at the gospel, there is a group that can't be around sin. People that are, that are too clean to be around unclean. In the gospel, those are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones that can't be around sin. So, is God more like a Pharisee? Or is God more like Jesus? Is God more like a Pharisee or is God more like Jesus? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. Uh, I think you guys know the answer on that one. So let's go down to the, this next telling uh, of here. Uh, this is also the restorative view. And it starts very, very similar. And uh, it starts very similar to the first story. And you can see also, and this is an older version. It has roots that date far earlier, this particular story, to the patristic fathers. They're, this particular story is older than the one that I just told you. It dates back farther and farther to uh, the, one of the, fir- the very church fathers of the church. So here is this, this story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning... Humanity and God were in perfect unity. The, word, the world was as it was intended to be. God and humanity, they were living in harmony. The way was good. It was very, very good. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they sin. And Adam and Eve, they sin and, and they begin, uh, they create a problem of death and futility. And in this, in this story, the problem is death and, and futility because in Romans it says that the wages of sin is death and sin is a serious problem. And so what God does is he gives them clothes, kicks, he, he invites them out of the garden because in the garden that is where they will be there for eternity. So he kicked them out. And in the story you see God pursuing the descendants of Adam and Eve. You have a story of Moses. Moses decides that he wants to do something to free the people of slavery. And so what he does is he kills an Egyptian uh, soldier. And then he goes off and he's, he's cast out for 40 years of exile. But what happens in this story is that God goes... To, to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And he says, Moses, I am. Follow me. I am here with you. Go back to Israel and take your people out of Egypt. Uh, we have the story in the New Testament of Jesus. And in, in the New Testament of Jesus, there is a story of a woman who was at the well. A woman who not only had one husband, not only had two husbands... 
And I only had three husbands, but I was on the fifth husband. And she was out there in the well. And Jesus goes to this woman. He goes to her and he talks to her. And he says, you know, you are thirsty. You are thirsty, but I am the living water. Come and follow me. Go and tell people about my way. Uh, and so, well, he doesn't do that actually, but he goes, she does anyway. She goes and she couldn't stop talking about it. Uh, we have another story in scripture of a man who chose the way of the Roman Empire. He kind of, what we have called a short man syndrome, uh, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus worked for the Romans to take, tax, to take the taxes away from the Jews. He was a traitor. He was someone who was living a way that was against the ways of God. And so he goes and, and he's stealing money from the poor. And so what does God do? God goes to Zacchaeus and goes to his house and says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I want to go to your house I want to eat with you, which is a statement of getting together with him and teaching him and restoring him from what he was doing. And so what Zacchaeus, what he ends up doing is he ends up selling all his possessions and giving three times back uh, to the poor. Zacchaeus with this encounter with God. We have a story of a woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Where was the man? It was a setup. This woman was caught in adultery. And so he's brought to Jesus. And Jesus, he kneels down and sees her. He sees her. He kneels down and starts drawing in the, putting his hand in the dust. And he says, let any of you without sin cast the first stone. And little by little, people start to fade away. And the, and the, they start to, to fade away. And finally, Jesus says, I do, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then we have a picture of the cross where the the systems go, the Pilate, the Roman Empire, they kill Jesus. And Jesus is on the cross. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, I forgive you. I forgive you for you not know what you do. And in that passage that Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We think that that right there is evidence that God and Jesus were separated in this moment. But if it's another example, if you were to read the rest of the passage, you would see that this is not the the case. If you look back to Psalms 22, the verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is in that moment while he's suffocating he is saying the first verse of an entire psalm. And we can give him a little grace for not reciting the entire passage. I mean, basically he's saying, Psalms 22 verse 1, go read it. So if you were to read that passage, it goes down to verse 24, the same passage. He says, for he has not despised, well, I'll start in verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering or the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. God was always there. 
God was always in unison with Jesus. Jesus was never alone because Jesus is the representation of God. God shows us, Jesus shows us who God is. So Jesus dies on behalf of humanity. But as we read in Psalms, it says that at the end, unto the ends of the earth, up to Sheol, I will be with you. And he raises us up to be in unison with him. There is no place where Jesus is not. There is no place where God is not. It's like that story that Marshall said. That, you know, sometimes we feel in that first story that God is that, that communion thing that's running away as far as we can. But as Marshall said, God, through this story of redemption is with us always. God is always, every time we turn, God meets us where we turn. Every time we turn again, God goes and he pursues us and he meets us again. Every time we make a bad decision, God goes constantly pursuing us, pursuing us, pursuing us because the sin is a sickness that needs to be healed and God is the great uh, physician who can do that. God is the one that restores us. Does this mean that sin is not taken seriously? No, sin is so serious. That is why God is continuing to pursue when we go. This, my friends, is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. Kerygma. This is not the kerygma that we share. But this is where God continues to pursue us even in times where we are running away. As I said, uh, I'm a little bit tired. (laughs) As I said, we were going to start in Romans. We're going to end in Romans. This is the good news, my friend. Isn't it? Is anybody excited about this? Is anybody excited about this? Because this is the good news. That God is here. God is with us. Emmanuel means God is with us. That this is the gospel, the good news. I, I uh, once had a friend. Uh, and uh, McKenna, are you here? She's somewhere. Oh, there you are. She just got a tattoo on her foot. Uh, but um, there was another friend of mine who got another tattoo on her foot. And I looked on the foot uh, and... Uh, I asked, well, what is this word? I couldn't really see what it, what it was. And uh, it, it said beautiful on her foot. The, the words beautiful were written in tattoo ink on her foot. I said, first of all, that must have really hurt. Um, secondly, what does it mean? I mean, I know that you, you think you're beautiful, but like you need to put it on your foot. She says, no, no, this isn't about me. This is a passage that comes from Romans chapter 10 verse 15. And I read the first part of this passage earlier in the sermon about this idea that we are called to be those that are participating in kerygma, that we use our words to share the good news. And in verse 15 of that same chapter, it says, and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That is our call to take our feet, to take us. And how beautiful are the feet of those who can share this, 
can share that God is restoring all of humanity. That God isn't this wrathful, cranky, wrathful God that needs to be appeased and is against Jesus, but God is a God of love who is always pursuing us, cares deeply about our sins, and is restoring us. It's like, like a great physician cures the disease. We offer an invitation each Sunday, and you are invited to have beautiful feet this week. To have feet that carry the good news outside of this building, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. That is the good news. And may we kerygma. There'll be elders on the side. If you want to learn about baptism, I'll be up front. Why don't you come while together we stand and sing. The God of the heavens. The God of the heavens. The